Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today, I'll be handing over host duties to Rasu Shrestha, Chief Innovation and Commercialization Officer and Executive Vice President at Advocate Health, and my guest for Episode 12 of Taking the Lead. In response to a number of requests from our listeners, I will shift to the guest's chair, and Dr. Shrestha will be asking the questions. As a regular listener to this podcast, I know you understand the value of leadership training. So I want to share information about an upcoming meeting that I am confident you will find valuable. If you are looking for solutions to the challenges keeping radiology practice leaders up at night, then prepare to strengthen your industry connections and elevate your practice leadership skills at the 2024 ACR RBMA Practice Leadership Forum, taking place January 19th to 21st in Phoenix, Arizona. Physician leaders and practice administrators will come together to listen, learn, and think strategically about problem solving as a team. Carve out protected time for your team to prepare for 2024 and beyond. The program runs from noon on Friday through noon on Sunday, with plenty of time built in to discuss practice challenges and solutions with your colleagues. There is something for everyone, whether you're a newcomer or you've been leading a practice for years. This event is where you'll convene with radiology's best and brightest. Topics include exploring radiology compensation models, hiring out-of-state radiologists, solutions for today's recruitment and retention challenges, the latest in revenue cycle performance analytics, and much more. Join us in Phoenix, January 19th to 21st, for another great lineup of essential practice management topics. To learn more and to register, visit acr.org plf today. Boy, are we going to literally and figuratively flip the script today. I am so excited. Hello and a big welcome to all of you to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I am not Dr. Jeff Rubin, but I am indeed Dr. Rasu Shrestha your guest host just for today, to this amazing, amazing podcast series. I have the privilege, the honor of truly flipping the script today, turning the table on my good friend and leader extraordinaire and the regular host of Taking the Lead, Dr. Jeff Rubin. The interviewer is going to get interviewed today. Today, I plan on giving Dr. Rubin, Jeff, a taste of his own medicine. But in doing so, I aim to delve with all of you, our faithful listeners, into the inner sanctum of who Jeff really is, what makes him tick, his unique and insightful perspectives on radiology, healthcare, leadership, and much, much more. I promise you that we're going to have some fun doing this. So buckle up and let's get going. So Jeff, welcome to your podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Rasu. I am delighted to be spending this time with you. 
Well, thank you so much. The privilege is really all mine. I've been in a series of meetings all day today, talking about everything from innovation to strategy to all the challenges that we're facing in healthcare today to where it's going. And in each and every one of those meetings today, all I had in the back of my mind was my conversation with you. That I wish you were in the room because you could have added so much to this. I'm really, really looking forward to this, Jeff. Well, Rasu, I couldn't have selected anyone better than you to fulfill this role. I'm just so delighted that you are willing to do this. You're such an accomplished leader yourself, and your breadth of perspective on healthcare as well as radiology is phenomenal. And so I'm just really delighted to, you know, as friends and as colleagues, to be able to just chat this afternoon. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. So before we dive into the meat of some interesting questions, hopefully, that I've laid out for you, Jeff, I I thought I'd give the listeners a little bit of a background on you. So Dr. Jeff Rubin is a, a renowned expert in the field of cardiovascular and pulmonary imaging. He's originally from Los Angeles, California, and we'll dive a little deeper into some of his background. He went to high school in Van Nuys in California back in the late 70s. He earned his uh, Bachelor of Science degrees with honor in chemistry and biology from the California Institute of Technology, Caltech, in 1982 in Pasadena, California, actually not too far away from where I lived with my family in California when we first came to the United States. He then earned his MD degree from the University of California, San Diego in 87. Jeff then spent the next 22 years at Stanford University, where he completed diagnostic radiology residency in 92, body imaging fellowship in 93, and after joining the faculty in 93, earned the rank of full professor with university tenure in 2005. Jeff served as the chair of the Department of Radiology at the Duke University School of Medicine, where he was appointed the George B. Geller Distinguished Professor of Research in Cardiovascular Diseases. He also led a dual appointment in Duke's Pratt School of Engineering as a professor of biomedical engineering. In 2014, Jeff earned an MBA from Duke's Fuqua School of Business, where he was named a Fuqua Scholar graduating in the top 10% of his class. Of course, he graduated the top 10% of his class. He's made such rich contributions to medicine in so many different areas. And I could list out all of the different things that he's done in spiral and multi-detector row, CT for imaging, cardiovascular imaging, CT angiography and and such. Stanford's 3D medical imaging lab is, is another big area where he accomplished so much in the field of 3D imaging. And since 2020, Jeff has served as professor and chair of the Department of Medical Imaging at the University of Arizona and Service Chief of Medical Imaging at Banner University of Medicine in Arizona. So as an exemplary physician scientist, Jeff's current work focuses on applications of artificial intelligence towards assisted interpretation of volumetric medical imaging and the contributions of perpetual variations to radiologist performance in volumetric image interpretation. What is really fascinating is had multiple different roles in various institutions. I'm not going to go through each and every one of them because it's going to take the entirety of our podcast today. But what I'm going to do next is really dive into a series of questions that I think will help us really understand who Dr. Jeff Rubin truly is. So Jeff, welcome again. And, uh, you know, as I was thinking about where to start, 
I thought would start from the beginning, right? So Jeff, tell us a little bit about your origin story. Where were you born? What was your family like back then? And how did you grow into this incredibly bright kid who ended up in Caltech in Pasadena? Wow. Well, thank you. I, I grew up in Sherman Oaks, California, which is a uh, suburb of Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley, the oldest of three. I have a brother who is about 18 months younger and a sister that is seven years younger. My dad is a mechanical engineer who spent his entire career essentially working in the space program, uh, developing launch vehicles, in particular actually helping to solve the problems of vibrations that occur in launch vehicles. He was a graduate of Caltech himself and a major inspiration for me growing up. My mom was or is a psychologist. Both my mom and dad have PhDs in uh, my mom in education and my dad in mechanical engineering. And so growing up as a kid in the 1970s was, there was just a lot of things to do, to spend one's time with. And so I got involved in all sorts of activities that just helped to feed my interest and curiosity in, in doing lots of things. One of them was music. And I started playing guitar when I was eight years old. And the, the bass guitar, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I switched I switched to uh, begin playing the bass when I was 11. And it's kind of an interesting story because when I was eight, I expressed an interest in playing guitar. My cousin was a guitar player. And so he offered to give me lessons, but it was for a charge. And so I had to do chores in order to earn the money to be able to pay for lessons. And by the time I got to junior high school and I found that there were actually classes where you could learn a musical instrument and you didn't have to pay anything or do chores, that to me was an incredible opportunity and a gift. And so I gravitated initially to the trumpet, which was what seemed like a really attractive instrument at the time. But there were 70 people in the beginning winds class and only 12 in the beginning strings class. And so you know, going uh, to the blue ocean, if you will, the class with 12, I had a choice of violin, viola, cello, or bass. And there was no choice there. It was bass. So a lot of my years in middle school and in high school were very much focused on playing in bands and performing. I had other hobbies and avocations too. I did speech and debate. I played a variety of sports and you know, just enjoyed school a lot. And so when it came to a decision as to where to go to college, at that point, I had a strong sense that I wanted to go into the sciences in some way. And I, though, was particularly interested in going to Berkeley, UC Berkeley. Yeah. That's where a number of my friends were going. It was a great school. And Caltech wasn't really on the radar screen for me, but I was encouraged to apply, which I did. And after going and visiting, it just seemed like such an incredibly unique place to go to school. I didn't expect to get in when I did. It was just really an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And that is how I landed at Caltech. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. It really is. And, and even in how you describe this, not just the studious Jeff Rubin, but also the all-rounded Jeff Rubin, right? Your interest in music and sport and, and, and your evolving interests in your early days, your formative days. I think that had a lot to do with you know, everything else that we'll unpack around your leadership journey. But as, as you reflect on this 
early part of your life experiences. Are there any you know lessons learned, even even from those earlier formative years, that may have shaped you, that may have really nudged you in the right direction, that got you to you know medical school and radiology and, and, and the rest of sort of the leadership roles. Anything from those early life experiences that you could share with us? Yeah. I mean, there's a number of them. I mean, the first thing I'll say is, is that learning never ends. And so in terms of you know leadership and my perspectives and approach, constantly I'm learning things. But when I think back to those early days, I'll point to two things that I think were really very fundamental for me. One is playing in a band. And when you are with a group of other musicians and you are working collectively to produce music that is appealing, that people want to listen to, and you're four or five middle schoolers or high schoolers just kind of coming together trying to figure it out, you know, the dynamics of, you know, mutual respect and listening to one another and figuring out what everybody needs in order to have the whole be greater than the sum of the parts is something that I think is really a characteristic, uh, particularly if improvisation is a big part of the music. The other thing that strikes me is, is that I, I worked a fair bit outside the home. As I mentioned, I was I had to pay for things, including guitar lessons. And once I had the opportunity to get a job outside the home, I did a number of different things, including uh, serving as camp counselor and assistant teacher. But uh, I did spend a couple of years working at Burger King. And working at Burger King, I worked my way up from the drink station to a fry station to doing the burgers, mm. ultimately to the front. And by the time I finished, I, I was promoted into a managerial role. Mm. And given the fact that I think I was probably 17 when I got this managerial promotion and I was expected to manage, you know, 16-year-olds and 17, 18-year-olds working there, that was a tremendous, a tremendous eye-opening experience. And, you know, the challenge of serving within the role of leader, although I didn't really understand even what that meant at that time, while also, you know, being a friend and colleague of all of these people, because we were all in high school together, that was a, a real interesting process and, and many lessons learned from those years. That's, that's amazing. Thank you for, for sharing that. I mean, it's really interesting how those formative years and those experiences, whether it's you know, part of a band and music, and then you know, working your way up, right? Everything from flipping burgers to being a manager of Burger King at 17, those life experiences really shape you. So thank you for sharing that. And if we move forward a couple of years and think about your time back in medical school, what would you say was your favorite part about medical school? Well, it was learning medicine. <laughs> when I was an undergrad, I majored, as you mentioned, in chemistry. And then when chemistry didn't look like it was what I wanted to do, I majored in biology too. And I, I really had envisioned that I would be working in a laboratory, unfolding the details of science and, and trying to make new discoveries. But it, it became pretty evident to me that the cadence and pace of a research career didn't quite mesh with what I felt good about on a day-to-day -day basis. And also, I was really, really curious about 
the human body and how it worked. And I mean, I read books even in high school about Wilder Penfield wrote this book in the 1940s where he was putting electrodes in the brain to see what portions of the brain did in awake patients. And I read his book in high school and I just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. And I just wanted to know more and more. And so going into medical school, it was really almost a sense of pent up desire to really understand just what it is to be human. And particularly in those days, you know, from an anatomic and physiologic perspective, it was very much an intellectual curiosity driving me. And that's, that's amazing. And, and I can see, you know, now that we know who you are today with all of the accomplishments that you've achieved in, in your career and then some, it, that, that never-ending curiosity is something that has been a consistent driver of, of your growth trajectory. So thank you for sharing that. You, you pursued an MBA, and I know jumping ahead a little bit, I'll go back to some of the other accomplishments in your career, but you pursued an MBA, but you did that a little bit later in your career. And as I reflect back on my journey as well, you know, I did an MD on radiology, did the informatics thing, then also pursued an MBA. But ours was maybe at slightly different times in our careers. You did yours from the, the Foucault School of Business at Duke in 2013. And it's very different from an MD course, as, as we know. Talk to me a little bit about your rationale in getting an MBA in the 2013 timeframe there. And what was that like? Well, so going to Fuqua after having served in a number of roles. When I was at Stanford, I had served, as you mentioned, in founding and developing a 3D lab. I had served as a division chief of cardiovascular imaging. I had been an associate dean for seven years of clinical affairs and then chair of radiology at Duke, as well as having started a few businesses. All of that without any formal education and training around a number of domains that just struck me as being really important to know. And I had not had an opportunity that emerged to learn about accounting and economics and behavioral dynamics and leadership from a formal educational perspective. And, and there's so many different domains in business school that when I saw an opening in my schedule, if you will, to potentially consider it, I was really motivated to go and to attend business school from the perspective of both learning the way the experts say it should be done, as well as being able to look back on a number of years of experiences in really, you know, major high quality institutions to see just whether or not the way I observed organizations to run and business to be conducted aligned with what the business school experts said should happen. And I, I had an inkling from some of my experiences leading up to that, that some of the things that I would observe in terms of decision-making and processes leading to decision-making within organizations didn't fit the patterns that aligned with my sense of logic. And so it really was kind of important to me to, to figure that out and to get validation and to, to know, am I looking at things wrong or can I learn something to help lead in organizations better than what I knew from the past? 
That's really wonderful. And I, and I, I know I jumped ahead a little bit to the MBA days, but the reason I did that is I, I really wanted to better understand, you know, you did so many things, including the entrepreneurial things, and we'll dive into that in a little bit here. But, you know, you saw a need in 2013 to get an MBA and then to fill, at least in my journey, for me, it was like a void not knowing, not understanding spreadsheets and business plans and the things that you just articulated so well. And, and I wonder if there are opportunities when we think about medical education, right? When we think about even residencies and, and such for us to bring in some of these facets that oftentimes are voids, you know, earlier on in, in our training curriculum, because, you know, the, the future leaders in radiology and medicine in general have to deal with not just human bodies, as you were mentioning earlier, but also with the realities of the business of healthcare. And, you know, there was a gap in the training and you got into the MBA at a slightly later stage in your career. And I think it gave you so much more to further propel your career. So what are your thoughts there? I mean, in terms of the medical education that you went through, that the medical education curriculum that exists today versus the things that you think also perhaps need to be put into that curriculum to better prepare the leaders of tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, this is a really great question, and it's really multifaceted. And I'd probably approach it from both kind of the business school side and the medical school side. You know, from the medical school side, there's no question that greater awareness and sophistication in how healthcare operates within, you know, let's limit it to the United States for right now. You know, that's where most of us are located. But if you're in another country, you know, within the context of your healthcare markets and such, which can be very different around the world, having a perspective and understanding both about the economics that drive the performance of healthcare, the financing of healthcare, but also being able to work effectively within organizations. And I can't overstate the value of taking the time to understand and unpack the relationship of a physician on a team that involves, you know, many highly valued team members, whether it's nurses or technologists or physical therapists, you know, administrators, the patient, everybody is part of a team and understanding how to build strong teams, how to support strong teams, how to get the best from teams is something that is very much in the wheelhouse of a business school education and that we have very little time spent during medical school to teach. And I think that, you know, when I think about all of my interfaces with the medical school curriculum and even from the perspective of trying to get more radiology into the experience of medical students, I think the big challenge is just that medical school goes quickly. There's a lot to teach and a lot to learn, and it's very hard to cover the full landscape and to necessarily get all of these into the program. That's not to say that it's not important and it shouldn't be there. It's just a challenge. Now, what I would say from the business school side is, is that having the privilege of being a business school student when I was in my 50s was that, firstly, I, I was in a class where the student age ranged from 25 up to 
I, I could very well have been the oldest in my class. There, there might have been one or two people that were about the same. But having work experience that you can bring to business school is invaluable. And I did spend a little time auditing what were called the daytime MBA classes, which were the people who were getting MBAs right after their undergrad. And there's a context that's missing when you are trying to understand and learn the relevance of a number of these domains, whether it is marketing or managerial accounting or organizational dynamics or or strategy. Having some basis to link what you're hearing in the classroom to real life circumstances, particularly that overlay with the medical profession and radiology, is so empowering and so it just creates such a stronger experience and a anchor for the information. So from that perspective, I am very glad that I had all of the experiences to contextualize when I went to business school. And I, to a certain extent, feel like the business school curriculum delivered simultaneous with the medical school curriculum would leave out an opportunity that people could gain more by waiting a little bit and then going back for that education. I couldn't agree with you more. I feel privileged too that when I did do my MBA, it was actually an executive MBA, right? So I've, I, I had to, at that point, by definition, have had X number of years of working as an executive to qualify to get into the EMBA program. But in all of those experiences made it so much richer in terms of getting that knowledge base at that point in time. And then to your point, the interactions with others that were in that program, the, the, the life lessons that they brought in, their experiences as executives and, and the real world elements that got brought into that, I think made it that much richer as well. Yeah, absolutely. I might just add that, you know, I I think that, you know, for those who are considering going to business school, you know, something that was mentioned to me at the outset, but that really was emphasized throughout my time in business school is, is that you gain as much from your fellow students as you do from your professors. And because so much of the work in business school is team-based, Being on a diverse team that is composed of people with experiences from different industries, different geographies, you know, completely different perspectives is such an educational experience unto itself. And, you know, you get assigned to teams where you need to produce deliverables on a very rapid cadence. And, you know, the exercise of learning how to work with people who are, you know, either engineers or from finance or just, you know, from completely an entrepreneur, very different backgrounds is an excellent exercise. And so um, for those considering business school, I, I think looking at the diversity of the student body, the experience of the student body is really an important consideration to maximize the experience. I couldn't agree more. Jeff, one thing I did want to do was take a couple of steps back so that we can jump forward. And you'll see what I mean by this. I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your experience in Stanford and where you co-founded the Stanford 3D Medical Imaging Laboratory in 1996, which is baffling to me. And I'm thinking about you know 3D imaging and all of the amazing things that are here today in 2023. And back in 1996, you've co-founded 
the Stanford 3D Medical Imaging Laboratory. And you served as a medical director until 2010. You and your teams published the first descriptions of novel volumetric image presentations, including perspective volume rendering as a basis for virtual endoscopy and curved planar reformations and really set the bar. You set the standard. And I know all of the work that you did with you know, some of the key leaders that some of whom you, you and I both know in the, in the industry around 3D imaging really started from, from way back then. So it, it seems to me like even back then, you knew what the future was going to look like. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. I mean, how did you end up co-founding this 3D medical imaging laboratory and have that vision and that foresight back then? How did it all happen? Yeah, this is a little bit of an arc to, to take you through, and hopefully it's time well spent. I'll start from the beginning of my residency. And you know, coming out of Caltech, where I had done some research, I had this sense that I wanted to stay connected to doing research. And being at Stanford as a resident was ideal, because there is an ethos of getting involved in investigation and research. And the kind of projects that I did as a first and second year resident were really very, very simple and very basic, but they involved getting me to the RSNA as a second year resident, which back in, the, in those days, you know, 1989, I think was my first RSNA. That was quite an eye-opening good time, I got to say, from many perspectives. And it just spurred me on to want to do more to get to the RSNA that next year, which meant getting abstracts accepted. And it was coming back from the RSNA as a third year that I learned that at Stanford, we were going to be citing the first spiral CT scanner in North America. And I had advanced my research interests to the point where I was doing MR angiography research on the pulmonary circulation with gadolinium enhancement. And when I learned about you know, the basic principles of spiral CT, which of course was the first CT geometry to allow continuous volumetric acquisition, my interest in the vasculature and how I could use CT for that was something that sparked my interest to the point where as soon as I got back from Chicago in late November of 1991, the scanner was just sighted for a week, and I looked to find an opportunity to do a CT angiogram. I didn't know what a CT angiogram was at that time. No, nobody knew. It wasn't a thing. But the idea was, is let's get a volumetric acquisition through a vascular bed during a high flow injection of iodine and see if we can create some volumetric images of the vasculature. And so the renal arteries were the target that interested me at that moment because we could only cover nine centimeters in 30 seconds. And back in those days, the principle of IRB sanctioned research and such weren't quite established. And so it was really a matter of my calling a clinician who had a patient coming down to image a meningioma in the brain. And for those scans in those days, we would drip contrast in, wait three yeah. minutes and scan. So I just asked, can I just do a rapid injection, scan the renal arteries, and then we'll scan the brain. And the doc is like, sure, no problem. And the patient's like, sure, no problem. And so, so we did it. And on that CT scanner was software to generate shaded surface displays, which were simplified 3D visualizations, but just gave it a try, created that image. And when I walked into the hospital at that time, this essentially very early spiral CT scanner was sighted in a trailer in the parking lot, actually, at Stanford. I walked in the hospital with film pictures of these images 
And uh, the response to it was absolutely astounding. People saw these images and just thought, oh, this is just, I, I, I can't even really convey the, the feeling of excitement and enthusiasm, not only that I experienced, but that I heard from others, from the vascular surgeons, um, from the angiographers. And at that point, it just sparked this incredibly intense period where as a third year resident, I essentially took the lead to get collaborations, to get patients down to really study this. And, and a key partner, key, I had multiple key partners and, and mentors in this, but Michael Dake, Brooke yeah. Jeffrey were absolutely fundamental to this all. I mean, Mike recently became the chief of interventional radiology at Stanford at the time, and he was all about, let's get angiographic correlation. I can help send you patients. We'll send you patients getting diagnostic angios. And so one thing led to another, and we were validating this new method, and then the technology was advancing, and Siemens and GE were very interested in our being at the forefront of using that technology. And so as it started building over the next few years, I did my fourth year of residency, I did my fellowship, and then on to the faculty. That just became, you know, my de facto academic focus. And we were in Silicon Valley and, you know, looking for ways to expand and maximize the capabilities of all of this was a, a tremendous motivator. And Silicon Graphics was a relatively young company in Silicon Valley and got introduced to a very influential person there at Silicon Graphics through another very important mentor of mine, Sandy Nepal. You know, Sandy and I ultimately founded the 3D Lab, but it was through the opportunities that we had in understanding hey, there's new graphics capabilities that are coming. I mean, in those days, to, to do a volume rendering, which we started initially in 1995, before the founding of the lab, it took 36 hours to render a one-minute video on a computer that was the size of a refrigerator. And I sat and I coded every keyframe. I had to learn a little bit of Unix to be able to do this and to fly through a stent graft of a CTA and showing those images, seeing those images just gave this profound sense of opportunity for radiology and for the analysis of images that were just leaps and bounds beyond what we were always used to looking at, which were just standard transverse reconstructions of CT scans. Founding the lab just seemed like something that we absolutely had to do. It, it was both an engine for formalizing research and collaboration, but also a platform for delivering a clinical service. And that was really fundamental to its founding. And, you know, the need as we were doing more CT angiograms and other applications for volumetric CT, we needed a mechanism for processing these cases. And so the lab became a place for us to develop essentially workflows, clinical workflows and processes for delivering at scale, increasing volumes of complex 3D analyses and associated innovation to build upon those analyses. That's just amazing. Thank you for, for walking me through that journey and, and the rationale there and, and, and how you essentially established what has now become, you know, just bread and butter to medical imaging. If you think about you know, the modern day medical imaging department, you know, 3D imaging is this bread and butter. It is, it is part of what we do. But at that point, it was such a pioneering thing. And, you know, you established the Stanford 3D laboratory and then scaled it, right? The clinical service facility that you talked about, 
but also the uh, the training of the hundreds of physicians and technologists that went through that lab. It, it's a model that now gets emulated worldwide. So kudos to you for that for that foresight. It was an amazing moment in time and so heady for me, you know, in my 30s, my early 30s and, and mid 30s. I was traveling the world, sharing the work that we did. I learned a lot of lessons about sort of being at the pioneering point. I took a lot of lumps from people that just didn't see that this was the wave of the future. A lot of humility, a lot of humble pie, but just, man, I... I wouldn't trade those years for anything. It was so amazing. And it was very much a reflection of being in the right place at the right time with the right resources, with the right mentors. I mean, I cannot overstate how fortunate I was to be able to have the opportunity of, of doing what I was able to do. That's fantastic. So, so, so let's move ahead a little bit. I, you know, so radiologists, right? We're in the dark room all the time. And then, you know, from the dark side, you went to the dork side, informatics, 3D imaging. And, and you know, there was a, a, a good bit of sort of back and forth where you were, I think, leveraging one to really grow the other and in growing the other, really going back and leveraging, you know, your core. But then leadership, right? That, you know, that, that naturally came to you. When did you realize, Jeff, that you wanted to do more than air quotes here, just practice medicine? What, what compelled you to get into leadership roles? And what was that journey like? It came pretty quickly. And what's interesting is that the dynamics in those days at Stanford was that I was provided with a relatively coveted a tenure line appointment at Stanford, which in the medical school was limited. There, there were billets. And so, you know, you could only get a tenure line appointment when someone gave up a tenure line appointment. And so the chair of the department, somebody who I have tremendous respect for, Gary Glazer, you know, basically told me that my task over my early years was to be an, a come and accomplished re researcher and investigator. And I expressed strong interest in having leadership opportunities. I wanted to build a section of cardiovascular imaging. I wanted to start the lab. Each of those were met with, at first, a lot of skepticism and strong recommendations against my doing it because of the importance of my meeting the needs of gaining tenure. But, you know, it just was this sort of very strong interest that I wanted to build new programs and I wanted to develop capabilities. And the idea of a new section of cardiovascular imaging was to recognize the fact that at that point, CT and MR were poised to transition from conventional angiography. In order to do that, there needed to be a, a home for that to occur and, and for radiologists who are, who are focused on that domain to be able to really practice it at a high level. And so it, it just, it was something that I really wanted to lead and to build. And so getting a taste of that just, you know, made me want to do more. And, and I would say that as I gained opportunities to take on larger administrative roles, particularly at Stanford, a big part of it was similar to my curiosity that led me into medical school was a curiosity to understand how is it that this big complex hospital 
academic medical center works. How do, how do, who are all these people? Who is the CEO? Who's the COO? You know, how do they interact? How are decisions made? You know, what are they thinking in the department of medicine or the department of surgery? How are the nurses organized? And, and, you know, being within the radiology department, I just had such a very limited window into that. And, and so when I was offered the opportunity to become the associate dean for clinical affairs, it just, you know, opened up my eyes and opportunity to interacting with a much broader, you know, spectrum of people who were equally passionate about what they were doing on a daily basis. And a big part of leadership is working with diversely skilled people and, you know, bringing them together ideally to as I mentioned earlier, create something that's greater than the sum of the parts. And that just really excited me. That's that's wonderful. That is so telling of the leader that you are today, just even in the way that you describe that leadership journey. And that's quite quite remarkable. You know, one other area, Jeff, that I wanted to dive into for our listeners who may not have a full understanding of you from, from your career perspective is really around how you are an innovator extraordinaire. Over the last 24, 25 years, you've served as a consultant to numerous startups seeking to bring really important innovations to the marketplace. You've successfully originated two corporations that provide advances, massive advances in, in medical care. In 97, you co-founded Trivascular Inc., and you remain pretty actively engaged in supporting the development of the, the low-profile aortic stent grafts until the company was bought in 2004. And then in 2011, you co-founded Informatics in Context with one of our favorite people, Vikram Simha, a good friend of yours and a, and a good friend of mine as well. And I know you and I talked with Vikram quite a bit around informatics and, and, and the contextualization of you know key facets of data points in in the context of imaging and in in co-founding this company informatics in context in 2011 you know the company really made a lot of progress under your guidance and Bikram's leadership as well providing real-time automated adjudication of prior authorization requests via EDI 278 so tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial side, right? All of these innovative ideas that have culminated into not just ideas, but real impact as companies and you know, revenue-generating organizations that you know, have done so well. Tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial side and what really led you to scratch that itch and, and do so well in that realm. Yeah, so I have to, you know, credit circumstances again a, a bit. Two, two major circumstances that led me down the entrepreneurial pathway. One was the fact, again, that I was at Stanford, and Stanford being in Palo Alto and immediately adjacent to Sand Hill Road in the 1990s. I mean, that is the center of venture capital activity in the United States, and, and you know, the, the birthplace of, uh, of so many companies that grew out of Silicon Valley, and so. So 
it was both being in that environment and also one of my roommates from Caltech calling me up one day when I was just a couple of years onto the faculty with a idea that he had. And he was a mechanical engineer. He did computational fluid dynamics. And he had this notion that they wanted to, he and a couple of his graduate school colleagues wanted to start a company that focused on designing a stent graft and using the knowledge from, you know, 3D geometry uh, potentially available from CT scanning uh, with computational fluid dynamics to design a novel intravascular device. And, you know, as soon as I heard these ideas, I was all in and we founded Trivascular. And that process of founding the company, developing a vision, an MVP, a minimum viable product, even though we didn't know that it was called that back in those days, you know, pounding the pavement up and down Sand Hill Road to get initial funding and and to be able to take that one step at a time was an amazing experience, an amazing education. And that company really taught me so much. And my co-founders and and the people that I got to work with, that was really my initial exposure. It's the relationships that you develop along the way that lead to the opportunities downstream for things like this, like founding Trivascular. And we ultimately sold the company to Boston Scientific. And, you know, that it was just a very rewarding experience. Well, around the same time, the person that you just mentioned, a good friend, Vikram Simha, was a early stage engineer helping to build Terra Recon. He had actually just moved from Vital Images over to Terra Recon in order to develop what was the first server client model for remote rendering of 3D images and remote control of that. And, you know, they were in San Mateo, I was at Stanford, and, you know, we became thick as thieves in designing the entire interface for what became the Terra Recon Intuition product and, and initially what was called AquariusNet. And just sort of th- that, that opportunity to work together, he an engineer, uh, me, you know, as a radiologist, providing the ideas and, and being able to build new prototypes so quickly and to get them into the market was very, very exciting. And so when the opportunity came to potentially form a company with Vikram, and it was, you know, after Vikram had spent time as chief technology officer now at Toshiba and a number of other roles, just things aligned. And so we formed Informatics in Context. And, you know, that was an incredible journey too. And, and there's just so much to unpack about entrepreneurship. And, you know, one thing I'll say about it that's really very different from the day-to-day work within our health systems and within healthcare is, is that the healthcare markets are, are very, very complex and highly structured, you know, with the role of payers and, you know, insurance companies and hospitals. And so when you're a provider, when you're a physician in a organization, you know, the, the market is something you're not very well exposed to. But when you're founding a company, market conditions, competitors, complements, you know, all of the market forces that exist become such an important element you know, to the success that you might have in introducing something new and then gaining traction with it. And, and so th- there's the whole externally facing characteristics of building a company, as well as, you know, internally facing to build an organization that can execute and deliver. And early stage company formation, there's so many degrees of freedom, so many both opportunities to do things quickly and to scale, but, you know, ways to, to fail. And, and, 
it, it just it requires a, a, a very open mind to being willing to make pivots and rotate. And in informatics and context, we certainly did that, you know, before being able to settle in on what we ultimately pursued, which was the automation of prior authorization. But Every experience working with companies, whether it's early stage companies or whether it's slightly more mature companies that are looking to evaluate their strategy, is is just an amazing journey. It's an amazing intellectual exercise, and it's a very rewarding aspect that I've been privileged to be able to do. That's just wonderful. You know, each one of these things that we've talked about so far in this podcast today could be, you know, amazing chapters in a book, and I and I so hope that you're writing a book at some point, a memoir or something, you know, really documenting your life experiences and the things that you've led and the things that you've created. I, I really, really hope that, Jeff. And, and as I was reflecting on, you know, how we should have the conversation today so, you know, so that we can bring out, I can bring out, you know, the essence of this multidimensional, multifaceted leader that you are, you know, I, I, I put these questions together based on the research that I was doing. But I was thinking, you know, at, at this stage in, in this interview, I, I thought, you know what, let me pivot a little bit. And for the next couple of minutes, I, I want to introduce a, a new section just to, just to keep things fun, but also a different way to perhaps get into some core elements of what makes you, you. So this new section here, Jeff, if you would allow me to do so, I'm calling it Five Quotes, five questions. So I have handpicked and curated five quotes that I love that really make me think about you. And with each quote uh, that I'll put out there in front of you, Jeff, is a question. And I'd love your view, a quick view on, on each of these quotes. So, so if, if you're okay with it, I'll, I'll start with the first one. Well, let's give it a shot. <laughs> All right. So five quotes, five questions. So the first quote that really makes me think about you and the life that is unfolding in front of us is by Fuchan Yuan. And, and he says, there are three essentials to leadership, humility, clarity, and courage. So again, the quote, there are three essentials to leadership, humility, clarity, and courage. So Jeff, I'd love your views on leadership. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think it is a really insightful quote. See, humility Courage clarity. and clarity, yeah. So I'm glad humility comes first because I cannot say enough of what I have come to appreciate of the importance of bringing humility to leadership because you know leadership fundamentally is helping others to achieve. And yeah. it is bringing clarity to what is to be achieved. And so clarity is important. But in order to work with a team, with an organization, it is fundamental to have a perspective of humility that one doesn't know exactly how is going to be the best way that we're going to get this team to work together successfully, that we're going to necessarily get exactly to the outcome we want to get to. We have to have an idea of what that outcome is. And it's fundamental within the context of the leader's role to have the courage to articulate a vision and to be able to help to guide the group. But if one doesn't have the humility to understand how it is that this group will arrive at this outcome 
mm. and to have the humility to consider different pathways and different approaches. I mean, it is certainly reasonable and expected that a leader might have some preconceived ideas about ways to achieve an outcome, but so fundamental and important to be able to pivot and to have the humility to say, you know what, I thought we were going to be able to do it this way, but now that I've heard you, I understand that's not that's not going to work. So let's do it your way. And I think that that's pretty fundamental. If you don't have followers, you're not a leader. And so yeah. you have to start there. You, you absolutely have to start there. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, the second quote that, I, that really makes me think about you is from Steve Jobs. And he says, innovation is the ability to see change as an opportunity and not a threat. So you're one of the most innovative leaders in the field of imaging, one who's deeply ingrained in the practice of medicine and really knowledgeable in the administrative realities of today's healthcare. What do you make of this quote by Steve Jobs? Innovation is the ability to see change as an opportunity, not a threat. Yeah, I think it comes down to working to get comfortable with disruption and being willing to disrupt yourself. And that means to disrupt, you know, all that is around you, how you do things. And it is hard once we get comfortable and once we gain competence and we gain expertise to think about the fact that we might endeavor to do something that would destroy our competency, that would destroy our expertise, but would lead to something ultimately that is greater. And that, that is the opportunity side. And so it is, I think, fundamental to be honest with oneself when faced with a condition. I'm not even going to call it an opportunity. An environmental condition. There is a new technology. We have a bunch of people who want to provide this service. There is a new company that is formed to do this work. And maybe any one of those activities could be viewed as risky to our current status quo. And there can be a tendency to sort of get protective and to hunker down and to say, no, no, we, we don't want change. We shouldn't have change. We're the experts. We know how to do it. We're going to do it this way. But, you know, by taking the step back and saying, maybe there is an opportunity to do things differently in partnership with this new company, these new people in our organization, this new technology, it might mean that I'm going to do things differently than I have. And I might miss the old way that we did it. But wow, how exciting it is potentially to invent the future, to do something fundamentally new. And being at the forefront of that and being able to share your experience with others to be able to hopefully lead them along is very rewarding. I mean, it just feels so good to see other people come along and follow in a new pathway. And so essentially that's, that's what I take from that quote. That's wonderful. Thank you. I, I, oh, gosh, that is just amazing. The third quote, just to put it out in front of you, is by Brooker Washington. And he says, if you want to lift yourself up, lift up someone else. And, you know, you talked about mentors. I think you mentioned Sandy Napel, Gary Glazer, and a bunch of others. What's your approach to mentorship? Yeah, 
Firstly, just reflecting on the quote, I have to say that it is absolutely true. You know, sitting in the audience, listening to a student give a presentation or speak on something that they have been able to develop and that that I've been able to help them in in getting to that point is tremendously rewarding. And and just seeing the success of people that I have been able to work with at an early stage, I get as much from them as they get from me. It is tremendously rewarding. And, you know, I, I think mentorship is just so fundamental to our success within our profession or, or any profession for that matter. And honestly, I think it really comes down to helping people to find the passion that lies within and to helping them to nurture that passion, as well as hopefully giving them the tools to be able to realize their aspirations that are buoyed by that passion. Mm -hmm. And so it is a different construct in terms of mentoring people, depending on where that person is coming from and what it is that they need. And I think it begins with trying to understand what it is that they need, what it is that they want, and whether I can help them with that. I mean, sometimes I might not be the right person to fulfill that role, but to the extent that somebody you know wants to develop to learn to advance you know i'm all in to to help them with that and to learn and understand from them how i can best help them out that's beautiful really really well said thank you quote number 4 is by john rockefeller and he said good management so this is a question on management so good management consists in showing average people how to do the work of superior people. So, Jeff, when I look at your career and uh, and all of the things that you've been leading and, and managing as well, what's one key facet of management that you think are essential, whether it's in the reading room or in the boardroom? I think that there's an adage, managing is doing things right, leading is doing the right thing. And so mm. we're going to talk about doing things right in this instance. And to me, I believe in numbers. I believe in quantitative analysis. I believe in facts and in data. And what I strive to do is to bring logic and analysis of data to introduce to decision-making. And even though the best decisions do not rely exclusively on the data, decisions made without any data are risky and and potentially flimsy. Mm. And when I look to help other people to participate in decisions and to participate in taking on managerial tasks, oftentimes I find myself helping them to wrangle the data, to learn how to access the information, how to organize the information, how to synthesize conclusions, and then how to contextualize those conclusions with respect to other factors that might lead to those decisions. And, you know, there's so many facets to management that we could talk about, but I think I'll, I'll just sort of focus on that one there because it's one that oftentimes doesn't get as much attention as I think it deserves. Oh, that's wonderful. That's so, so spot on. Thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate it. And that brings us to quote number five, and this is on influence. So Ken Blanchard said, none of us 
is as smart as all of us. And it really makes me think about you, Jeff, with all of the things that you've accomplished. And, and, and one in particular is something that you pulled me into, the ACR RLI leadership course, right? The RLI Maximize Your Influence and Impact course. And, and you lead that so beautifully. And in, in this go around, we have you, obviously, myself, Dr. Judy Yee, Dr. Jocelyn Asharoff. And it's, it's amazing, right? This, this influence that you, you, you talk about and we talk about in that course. So reflecting on Ken's quote on none of us is as smart as all of us, talk to us a little bit about how you see maximizing influence and, and what does that look like to you? What maximizing influence means and looks like to me is being able to help a broad collective of individuals and an organization as a whole to move in a productive pathway and to be able to recognize how it can achieve outcomes that you know may not be apparent you know to any of us as individuals and I was, as I, I mentioned earlier, that I was privileged to serve as an associate dean for clinical affairs when I was at Stanford. And one of the aspects of that leadership role is, is that it was entirely lateral leadership. I had nobody reporting to me within that role, but it was really about learning to help to influence a collective of leaders who had a lot of responsibility and frankly, a lot more power than I did, but to, to work together to, to do things collectively, whether it was finding a way to implement a new electronic health record or developing a schema for introducing innovative clinical care into the clinical practice. These were activities that required that People come together and develop trust. Trust as a collective to listen to one another and to be open-minded to develop a solution that represented contributions from everybody around the table. And so bringing influence in many respects is first and foremost fertilizing the garden so that the seeds can germinate and the plants can grow. And the growth here is the growth of ideas that do not choke one another or that do not you know, take primacy over others, but to you know, create an environment where people feel safe to bring ideas forward, safe to disagree, safe to admit that they were wrong or to advocate when they know that they're right. And you know, essentially influence is something to be shared amongst the whole group. And it is through that influence that the synergies that we spoke of, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, is uh, realized. That's just beautifully, beautifully said. And I loved your analogy about gardening and the role of influence in leadership, you know, the nurturing, bringing sunlight to where there's shade and weeding and fertilizing, harvesting, all of these elements are so spot on. So, so there you have it. Five quotes, five questions. I think it gave us an opportunity to get insights into you, Jeff, in, in ways that I hope has been illuminating for, for our listenership, whether it was around leadership, uh, innovation, mentorship, management, or influence. So five key areas that you know, were really embodied in those five quotes that really made me think about you. So thank you for indulging me in that journey. No, thank you. No, it was really a lot of fun. Thank you.
Where I wanted to go with this last section here, and I've got a couple of questions that I thought we could we could go through. But first and foremost, it was really around the podcast. So here we are, right? You are the host of this widely acclaimed RLI podcast, Taking the Lead. And you do this so well in profiling the personal journey of radiology leaders, you know, more than 60 episodes released to date, and these have been downloaded over 85,000 times. I've had the honor and the privilege of being a guest in your podcast, and, and here we are flipping the script, flipping the table, so to speak, with me guest hosting this, this podcast as we interview you. So let's talk a little bit about, about this podcast, Jeff. You know, why did you agree to do it in the first place? And why is it so important to share these leadership stories? Why is it so valuable to you? Well, I have been so privileged to meet and work with and learn from great leaders and just great scientists and physicians and personalities. And oftentimes, some of these folks, when you're just getting, when you're just starting out, when you're a resident or a medical student, and you know you you learn about the luminaries in the field and you know the names, but you you don't know necessarily what these people have done. But more importantly, you don't know who these people are. And the idea of being able to help the community learn who is the person behind the name, who is the person behind the leader, behind the CV, seemed like a huge opportunity that I hadn't really seen being offered. So the opportunity to pursue the podcast came about after being privileged to serve as one of the founding board members of the Radiology Leadership Institute. And that was an invitation that came from Harvey Neiman, the former CEO for many years of the American College of Radiology. And wow, what a privilege to join such a distinguished board and also a tremendously talented leader and director for the RLI in Anne-Marie Pascoe. And we were at a point where we had been developing a number of programs for the RLI, and there was a sort of nascent podcast that was occurring as a way to sort of explore some very specific topics. It was being managed by one of the staff members of the RLI who elected to leave for another opportunity. And uh, I was at an RLI course and Anne-Marie approached me and said, you know, we have this podcast, so-and-so is leaving the organization you know, what do you think about maybe taking this on and, and what direction do you think we might take it? And so we talked about it. And I mean, I can vividly remember the lobby that we were sitting in and talking through a lot of aspects. What are we going to call it? You know, the theme music, all of these sorts of things. And it just sort of came together through, you know, the inspiration that two people can have together when, you know, you're really focusing on, you know, trying to deliver something meaningful. And we didn't know this was going to work. We didn't know what it was going to be like, but certainly wanted to give it a try. And, you know, from my perspective, I had never done radio. I'd never done interviews. I hadn't done any of this. And I was actually, frankly, very, very flattered that Anne-Marie would ask me to consider doing this. I wasn't exactly sure why I was given this opportunity, but you know, whenever given an opportunity, my first inclination is always 
to say yes. And, and you know, I, I've gotten into trouble with that before, and, and I've, <laughs> I've learned to to manage that fairly effectively. But man, I'm going to think really hard about a reason to say no before I say no. Even if I don't know exactly how we're going to make it work, I'm going to try to make it work. And the one thing I will say is, is that I have always had a profound respect for people who conduct great interviews. And the person that I will point to who I have had a deep respect for for so long is Terry Gross from NPR. Mm, yes. You know, just the way she is able to talk with people that might seem so intimidating based upon, you know, their accomplishments, you know, who they are, and to really get them to share some underlying truths about what they believe and and what drives them was tremendously inspirational to me. And even though it was, you know, a goal that was just so high up there for, for me to think about trying to follow in the footsteps similar to what Terry does, that was essentially my North Star. Mm. And I really saw it as essentially a hypothesis to be tested whether we could speak to radiology leaders and somehow capture just some of that magic that Terry captures when she speaks to her guests. Well, I think you've, you've done it really, really well. And, you know, it is a testament to who it is that you are but also the way that you research and you delve deep into all of these leaders that you've invited to this podcast that you know onto itself are little books you know and when when people listen to these podcasts they're able to get so much out of the individual leadership journeys of all of these amazing leaders that you interview so so thank you for for doing that and I you know cannot wait to listen to the rest of the other podcasts that you will you will do in this series Jeff, I, I wanted to dive a little deeper into another topic, another facet that I think is really important for listeners to understand about you. And that, that really is, as my boss right now, Gene Woods, who's the CEO of Advocate Health, he calls it work-life harmony, right? And you've achieved so much. You juggle so much. You've got five kids, you know, you've got all these leadership leadership positions and, and you know, advising role that you do, and you're an entrepreneur and innovator. How do you maintain that balance, right? How, how do you, you know, really focus in on things that bring you joy? I mean, burnout is such a big issue in, in medicine today. So how do you how do you achieve that work-life harmony that you seem to do so well? Thank you for that. I mean, it absolutely starts at home. There's no question about it. And, you know, my wife, Risa, who I've been privileged to be married to for 37 years, is a true partner in everything that I do and that we do as a family. And it really does broaden to our our entire, essentially, nuclear family of of seven, our five kids, Risa and I. And when... uh, (laughs) When our triplets were born and our oldest was 20 months old, it was a journey that none of us, Risa or I, expected we would ever be taking. It positioned us to learn to essentially juggle, but also to focus and to love in a way that we never you know, expected we would be presented with. And Raising our family through all of the joys and turmoil and ups and downs provides perspective and, you know, fundamental to all of 
what drives us on a daily basis, I think, is this sort of underlying feeling of love for our family and who we are collectively and as individuals. And I'm just so proud of all of my, I call them kids. I mean, at this point they're, they're in their late 20s, but you know, we have, we have a group chat and we're constantly, you know, tossing things back and forth and lifting one another up and, and supporting. And, you know, I, I can't overstate the role that family can play in helping to center us and in helping to give us the strength to take on challenges and to take on risks. And so first and foremost, I absolutely you know, have to recognize and talk about my family in that role. And even as our kids have become adults, you know, still, it, it is really very, very fundamental for us. There's, I think that, you know, nourishing the soul and nourishing the mind and nourishing the body, all of these are activities that, you know, help us to be well-rounded and and stay managed, to stay balanced. And I mean, there's no question that I am a nerd and that I love and take joy in things like numbers and in activities that, you know, might just suck the energy out of some people. Honestly, I can sit with a spreadsheet and build a pivot table and, and, you know, do stochastic modeling and just get joy and energy from that. And some people might see that as a sickness, but for me, it's one of my superpowers perhaps because I can come away from that, you know, just feeling energized. Just like actually after I conduct a two-hour interview, when I'm doing an interview for the podcast, I am so focused in on what I'm doing that when I step away, I just feel like, wow, you know, honestly, like this energy has been building up in me. And I, I can't speak to exactly, you know, how that occurs or why that occurs. But, you know, being able to derive pleasure from what you do and what is core to your work, I think is a gift. It's a gift. And trying to find ways to to derive that pleasure. And, you know, not everything we do at work on a daily basis can possibly give us pleasure. We have difficult conversations. We have difficult tasks to deal with. There's circumstances that we're confronted with that we wish we didn't have to manage. But, you know, it's it's being able to be buoyed by those exciting things and those great things. And there's lots of hobbies and activities that I, you know, try to endeavor to do whenever possible. I still play the bass guitar. And and over yeah. the years, I, I had a marvelous career before medical school where I was making a living playing music and touring and, and doing that kind of work and playing in bands and, and the kind of communication that occurs at a musical level when you are performing and improvising what you're playing is is so rewarding. So I continue to strive to pursue that. I like to work with my hands and build things. I like to get outside, to go hiking, to go bike riding whenever possible. It's this mix of things that, you know, I I know that everybody probably recognizes the things that gives them energy and gives them joy. And I think that finding those things and knowing what they are and making sure that you sort of move toward the light, that you practice those things is is the way to stay energized. Oh, I love that answer. Love it. Everything from your dear wife, Risa, to the triplets and five kids that you have, nourishing the soul, mind, and body that you you articulated so well, and the joy in pivot tables. I'm not going to forget that for a while. That's great. So this next question, Jeff, is just a reflection in your journey 
as a leader, right? And you've continued to grow in various leadership roles and accomplishments that you've led and the bars that you continue to rise. So what have been some of the most rewarding moments as a leader? I would say that one of them is to see a team of individuals come together after potentially approaching a task, a project that didn't at first seem to be possible or capable to realize success, and to ultimately seeing that team realize that success and actually be able to celebrate that success and to to be able to then take the capabilities and competencies that they have gained through the process of working through a difficult challenge and working together as a team to go on and to accomplish you know, more and new things, to see people evolve from very early stages to become leaders themselves. I mean, this is the, you know, the, the notion of, of being able to pay it forward and, and to, to bring the influence in a way where ultimately I'm not even a part of it. And it's happening. It's happening out there. And you just know that, you know, you touched that person or you touched those people and saw that now look at them. You know, they're they're realizing the success and they're making it happen, too. I get tremendous validation and good feelings from just watching the success of others that I have been able to help along the way. That's really beautifully said. So when you when you look at, you know, that journey, looking back, Jeff, what would you have done differently? Anything that stands out? Well, let's see. I mean, there's lots of specific things that I look at that I learned from. And my perspectives on leadership and even the task of being a leader have really evolved a lot. Early on, I think that I had a perspective that very much was reflective of some of the leaders that I knew at an early stage. And that was a bit more focused on being prescriptive about outcomes and about expectations and about, you know, really essentially articulating outcomes and goals that I I felt, you know, deeply passionate were where our organization needed to go. And over time, I have come to appreciate increasingly the value of having much less of a predefined notion of exactly how we're going to get there and even exactly where we're going to go and to focus first on understanding who we are as an organization, who we are as a team, and to really try to empower the bottom-up aspects of, of leadership, to help to develop a culture so that we can all help one another to aspire to be the best that we can be. And it also relates to being a leader within an organization and understanding the importance of the perspectives of all the other leaders that you work with. I mean, one of the things that I really find very important is to sit with the key leaders of my organization, the CEO, the chief operating officer, chief financial officer, chief quality officer on a regular basis and listen to where are their pain points? What are they worried about? And to not just come to them 
you know, to explore how they can necessarily help us or to tell them how we can help them, but to, you know, really try to listen and to develop an approach to leadership that, that spans our organization. I mean, my primary responsibility is to the department that I lead, to and to the people within it. I want them to be successful, and I want our radiology department, our medical imaging department, to deliver as much as we can for our patients, for our referring physicians, and for our organization. And the only way to do that is to essentially be just a receiver, a receiver of information. And so when you ask about lessons learned, it's really learning to concentrate on that and and to think about what I do on a daily basis to to lead for our organization is helping really to move us forward within the context of our organization, within the context of the people we have in our department, you know, the aspirations and and passions of our department and and the organization as a whole. That's beautifully said. Thank you. I I really, really appreciate that. Jeff, as we come to the, towards the end of our podcast here, one of the things that I I really want to understand from you, because you've seen so much, you've led so much, you've created so much, but here we are in 2023, as we reflect on going to the new year, 2024, and we're faced with tremendous headwinds and tailwinds in radiology and and in medicine in general. But my question to you is perhaps a little bit more of an optimistic one. So what excites you most about radiology and the future of healthcare? Well, what excites me about radiology is what excited me from the start. And that is radiology is a tremendously powerful force in delivering health care and in creating health and managing disease. Because essentially, you know, what we do is, is that we leverage technology that essentially is rooted in the delivery of energy in some way to extract information that can then be used to inform the status of our patients, of our populations, and and to, you know, essentially guide the way that a patient can ultimately become well or or to be managed. And the way that we interact with the energy, the technology, the information has changed so much over the years. And, you know, I think that what one thing that confronts us is this principle of artificial intelligence and the idea that maybe we're going to have tools in the not too distant future to find the things that we have worked so hard to find ourselves in the images. You know, a lot of radiologists take pride in searching and finding, you know, the subtle abnormality, the little detail. And, you know, when I was speaking before about, you know, potential competency destroying, there's perhaps a certain concern that, wow, what if AI, you know, can just read the chest X-ray and find all the abnormalities and populate the report? Or maybe AI can do that with a CT scan. You know, to my mind, the opportunity for us as radiologists is to continue to expand our role as informatologists. In other words, mm-hmm. we are the managers of information and the synthesizers of information. And information is fundamental to decision making. And so essentially, you know, if we see technology coming down the line that frees us from some of the more rote 
even drudgery associated with looking at you know, higher and higher resolution data sets with more and more voxels that just challenge us to observe and to detect, freeing us from that task to be able to help to direct how the information is aggregated, how it's combined across different modalities, not just imaging modalities, but other information across the electronic health record I mean, in order to help to inform decision-making. I'm not sure what other doctor is really poised to do that work. And to me, that is a potential future for radiology that really excites me. It's essentially freeing us from all the time we spend trying to find things in images to spending the time deciding what we're going to do with that information and how we're going to maximize the value of that information. Oh, just really, really, really beautifully said. And, you know, it's, it's such a privilege just speaking with you today, being able to dive deeper into the very elements of who you are and what makes you, you, and the things that really motivate you. I mean, the things that I learned, you know, never, learning never ends is what you said, nourishing the soul, mind, and the body, working your way up, everything from flipping burgers to all the amazing things that you did, the Stanford 3D Medical Imaging Laboratory, the presidents of various organizations, the boards of various organizations, board chairs, and then the facets of those five things that we went into with those quotes, leadership, innovation, mentorship, management, and influence. I've learned so much about you, and, and I hope the leaders that listen to this, the, the listeners, have taken so much from this as well. And I think we're all the, all the bit richer as a result of having listened to you. Just a final question. Any, any parting thoughts, any words of wisdom, anything that we didn't talk about, Jeff, that you'd like to share with your listeners? I would just say that I, I just feel a tremendous sense of gratitude and privilege for the opportunity to be able to share these moments with you, Rasu, to be able to talk about the things that we've talked about, to be able to bring the journeys of other leaders to our community through the podcast. I have such a deep respect for the people that we're privileged to work with on a regular basis or that, you know, that, that are in our community. And just having that opportunity to help to bring out the amazing qualities of all of these phenomenal people to our community is just such, such a profound privilege. And so, you know, to those of you who are listening, I just say thank you. Thank you so much for the joy and opportunity to help to make this happen. Well, thank you, Jeff, for, for everything, for your friendship, for your leadership, and for everything that you do to our community, our, our society here, and not just radiology, but, but medicine and healthcare overall. And, and what an honor to have flipped the script here and, and turned the table on you being, being the host of your podcast. So thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Rasu. Please join me next month when I speak with Dr. Michael Dake, Senior Vice President for Health Sciences and Professor of Medical Imaging, Medicine, and Surgery at the University of Arizona. He is also the Thelma and Henry Dolger Professor Emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine, an international leader in interventional radiology and pioneer of many transvascular therapies. Dr. Dake was responsible for the development and deployment of the first thoracic aortic stent graft 
critical insights into the pathophysiology and treatment of aortic dissection, and first reports of transvenous interventions. A leader within the Stanford University Departments of Radiology and Cardiac Surgery for 24 years, Dr. Dake served as the Chair of Radiology at the University of Virginia for three years, and for the past five years, he has overseen the Colleges of Medicine in Tucson, Medicine in Phoenix, Nursing, Public Health, Pharmacy, and Health Sciences at the University of Arizona. Dr. Dake also recently completed his term as President of the Society of Interventional Radiology. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.